Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Anne Natian Wong. Sustainability has been the core subject of Anne's studies and career choices for the past 20 years. From studying urban planning and environmental policy, working in nonprofit, sustainability ratings, and now developing various sustainability management tools for companies. Currently, she's the head of ESG at Dun & Bradstreet International, a leading provider of commercial data, analytics, and insights for businesses. Prior to Dun & Bradstreet, she was the global ESG product lead at Bureau Veritas Group, the world's second largest testing, inspection, and certification company based in Paris. She also worked as a project manager and senior analyst at Ecovidas, a global sustainability rating agency also based in Paris. Anne holds a master's degree in business administration from NSEED. She also holds a master's in public administration in environmental science and policy from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Arts in urban and environmental planning from the University of Virginia. Anne, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, Ed. So here's my first question. And I think we kind of hinted at this. When you were very young, before the world told you what to do or your parents told you what to do, what did you like doing? Coming from an Asian family, there's definitely some pressure of working in business and all that. And then I think that's where I kind of started on. But then I do want to go back a couple of years where I lived in Germany. I was very inspired by the way they live, like treat their resources. Of course, when I was nine to 10, that was too young to understand what sustainability means and, you know, definitely not a topic back then. But then, you know, fast forwarding to university, I started as a pre-business degree, but then, you know, quickly realized that sustainability has always been a really interest for me. And I eventually switched to studying urban planning because at that time, that was my approach to sustainability because the way you design cities really impact on how all of us live. If you have a good public transportation system, you would drive less. If you had good pedestrian walkways, you will walk more and take less of your car. So I think that started my sustainability journey. I'm sort of guessing because you've got a Bachelor of Arts in urban environmental planning. Did you want to be an architect at any one time or did you ever feel that? Yeah, so funny you said that because urban planning was within the architecture school right. at University of Virginia. And as an architect major, you have to actually declare already being an architect. You have to start at your first year. Yeah. That was not the case for urban planning. So I felt like I was quite interested in the architect aspect. But I came a little late. And, you know, again, coming from the pressure of some Asian parents, I just never really thought that architect was a way that I could continue with my studies. But then two years in college, I understand, look, I'm interested in sustainability. I understand how urban planning plays such an important role. 
And I get to fulfill a bit of the architecture aspect. So I did do a minor in architecture there. But yeah, it was definitely not a easy conversation when I told my parents I had to switch to that. I said, urban planning. I was like, what is that? Like, like, is that a real job? But, you know, I continued. I was able to double major also in French and then did my architecture minor. And I guess, again, to my parents' surprise, I decided not to go with urban planning at the end of my studies, even though that was my major, because I realized like, oh, maybe there are other ways that we could approach sustainability in a more effective way. So I think corporate social responsibility was the angle I was going afterwards. Terrific. There's a bunch of topics we want to hit here, but I want to jump into your current job at Dun & Bradstreet. You're integrating ESG data into the information, and Dun & Bradstreet has many big clients, and you help by bringing more transparency and credibility on their sustainability practices. People are able to make better investment decisions and direct more investment that accelerates the transformation in need for a sustainable future. With that description, tell us in your words about what you are doing at Dun & Bradstreet and why it matters. Sure. I do want to clarify that Dun & Bradstreet's approach is not focusing on the investment aspect, although that is very important. It's just that Dun & Bradstreet aren't focused in the capital markets. But what we are really strong at, and that's where our data kind of really shines, is that Dun Brasserie has data on a lot of entities in the world, and a lot of them are private. Dun Brasserie holds data on more than 500 million entities in the world. We are able to use a lot of these data into our newest ESG offering. So right now, again, going from the pure kind of data approach, we're able to generate a ESG ranking, which is a score between one to five for 74 million companies in the world. Hmm. Of course, purely data-driven solution. A lot of other service providers out there do a much more in-depth on, let's say, the public companies. So there's a much smaller number of them. But what we are strongest is we have a broad approach, even though we might just have the data approach, but we have a lot more coverage on all the companies in the world while having 74 million companies out there. So when companies are trying to understand their third-party stakeholders, either their suppliers, it could be small, medium business that they're working with. If they want, let's say, like an ESG screening, our solution, I think, is quite strong in the market because it's fairly cheap compared to human analysis versus us is purely data. Fantastic. So explain what third-party sustainability risk is and why companies should care. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of companies, they probably have a good understanding of their own operation, their own sites, they monitor their own water usage, carbon emissions, all of that. They have a good understanding. 
But what we realize is that a lot of these companies, their actual full environmental impact is actually coming from their supply chain. So there's studies around, let's say, 80 to even, you know, up to 90, 95%, depending on what company you are. Let's say a publishing house, I think 95% of your impact is going to come from your supplier because that's where you get your paper. That's where you do the printing. Like you don't do it in-house, right? So I think that's why... In the end, it's not enough just to look at your company's own operation and you really need to look into your supply chain. Where are you getting the resources? Where are your suppliers getting the resources? There's definitely many tiers of suppliers that are involved in the final product or even services that that you are providing. So I think in the end, from like a purely mathematical perspective, looking into the third party or your supply chain is very important because that's where all the impact is from. And I think since I'm based in the UK, from the European perspective, we see regulations actually asking these companies to look into their supply chain. And in the end, they make these large public companies to be responsible for their supply chain because they're the face of the ultimate product or services. Hmm. There seems to be a lot of interest because that seems to be the first thing, at least in the United States, that they're going to require companies to disclose really have to do with emissions more from the supply chain. But I know that there are other environmental impact and human rights, business ethic, conflict minerals. Do you agree that those are things that people should be focused on as well? Yes, that's a very valid question. And I think personally, if I'm looking at sustainability from a very comprehensive point of view, I think it is a bit problematic that we're so focusing on carbon emission. Of course, you know, net zero has really caught up as like the hot topic because of climate change. But I think we need to realize that there are many other aspects about our environment, about biodiversity, acidification in the ocean. There's many other aspects about the environment we do need to look at. The ecosystem is really complicated. All these different chemicals, uh, mechanisms are all intertwining to make our planet work. So I do think it is good to, let's say, focus on one topic, and then that is right now carbon, but we also need to spread out a little bit and look at other topics. And then, Raka, you mentioned about social aspects. That's also very important because I think under climate change, the poorest people are going to get the most impact from climate change. These are the people who live in areas in like Southeast Asia that's going to get flooded all the time. And these are not the people who have money to move or, you know, move to Mars if we yeah. ruin <laughs> our planet. So I think the social aspect is definitely real important. And then, of course, all the manual labor aspect that goes into all our products, right? I think recently it's been a 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza, there was an incident in Bangladesh where there was a big factory that collapsed and more than a thousand people died. There's more than 2,500 people injured. This turned out to be a supplier to a lot of big names out there, you know, Walmart, Zara, Mango, you can name a bunch of them. 
So, of course, the way that we're manufacturing our products it could be clothes, it could be anything that we use, mining, the way we're producing food. There's definitely a lot of labor that goes into it. And how are these labor being paid or treated? Yes, very, very much a pertinent question when we're talking about sustainability from a very comprehensive point of right. view. Right. One of my first memories of these sorts of things being of issue really goes back to Nike in the 1990s when they mm-hmm. held an allegation that they were using sweatshop labor to yeah. produce their products. And boy, it was interesting how they turned that around just by implementing a large range of improvements to improve working conditions and its supply chain and including minimum wage and how much people were paid and things like that. They were able to almost reverse people's initial negative impression into they went after it like a gangbusters and did something to create standards within the company. So I do remember that. And certainly, you know, a lot of other companies that have had problems from our point of view of working in corporate brand and corporate values and culture and things like that. We see the impact when people don't pay attention to that sort of thing and the potential against their reputation and value. So, you know, it surprises me that companies don't do more to really verify what's going on with partners and vendors and supply chain people. But I guess now there's much more pressure than there were 10 years ago or even five years ago. So hopefully that's a good thing. It's great that you brought Nike as an example. And there's definitely a lot of things they did to mitigate all these risks and improve conditions. Although we are still seeing certain news that certain factories are still linked to Nike. And just given the fact that supply chain is just so complicated, I think there's some studies saying that a teacher flies around like 12,000 kilometers in shit because it's just been from one stop to another, you get cotton that's harvested and then you send it to somewhere else to actually get it produced. You send it somewhere else to get it dyed and then you send it somewhere else to put it together. So on the tags and, you know, in the end, it travels tens of thousands of kilometers. And I think, again, very complicated supply chain and I don't think any of the apparel, at least the major ones, have a full understanding of their supply chain. Yeah, I just recently read a book called The Globalization Myth, and they underline in that book how the supply chains today go from country to country. You know, they can be shipped from Cambodia to Thailand to Asia, China. And yeah, exactly that the footprint is really quite large. And in the end, you know, it may be assembled in China, so it only has made in China on it, but it's very complicated. And to really get a handle on that, boy, it would take some kind of assessment. So what kind of tools do you suggest that people try to implement so they can get a handle on some of this? Yeah, I think right now when we're talking to a lot of clients, we're only just tackling the tier one and twos right now. And even just the tier ones, when you're working with suppliers, you usually have that 
20-80 rule, you're going to spend 80% of your spend with probably just the 20% of your suppliers. So with those major suppliers, of course, you can have your code of conduct, making sure that they're aware of the standards that you're looking at. And the next step is to really trying to understand whether they have certain certifications. They can probably go through some of the well-recognized assessments that are out there. And eventually, I think one of the ultimate steps is to do some sort of on-site audit, right? To actually send people either, you know, from your own company or ask a third-party service provider to do that for you from their professional point of view because they're all trained. They make sure they understand how to interview the workers so the worker is not hiding these particular aspects from you or from the auditors. So I think there's definitely different ways of employing things. I think one of the big question for a lot of companies is how do you balance that breadth and depth Ideally, look at every single supplier I have, but how do I focus on the ones that are most risky and then the most critical ones? If I spend you know, $10,000 with a small supplier, is that a lot of risk for me to do a full understanding of the supplier's CSR performance? Probably not. But I think in an ideal role, yeah, we want to look at everybody. But I think it's a challenge for a lot of these companies to really balance that breadth and depth. Yeah, it seems to me when I hear the ways people approach it, there's sort of on the one hand assessments and criteria and monitoring performance from their suppliers, whereas some of the most successful ones that I read about are really more partnerships where they sort of educate and help their resources get more in line and get more sophisticated with all of this. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I think that still goes back to breadth and depth. So if you have a strategic supplier who you spend millions of dollars with, of course, you want to work closely with them. I think what I realized in my previous positions is that I would imagine a large company, if they have a lot of buying power, the supplier would do anything that they say. But of course, in the end, that is not true because sustainability is one criteria out of pricing, quality, and it is hard to find a supplier that works well with you, right? So that's why some of these large companies, if they have the resource and if they deem the supplier very important and critical to their products, they will probably need to spend a little bit more time in educating them, engaging them, working together to see how they could improve together. And I think this is probably the area where a lot of competitors can be working together. So let's say the chemical industry, those big names out there, they probably all work with fairly similar suppliers out there. So if all these large chemical companies all have their own kind of standards, the suppliers would be just like you know, spending time on responding to all the different requests by these companies. They're probably are 90% similar, but you know, they still have to answer every single request. What we're seeing is that there are some sort of industry association, some sort of consortium where these chemical companies all come together and say, like, this is the standard that we want to get. Mm. 
and then the suppliers on responding to it. Because once they respond to this one standard, they can respond to different clients who are all from the consortium, from the same industry. So I think that one way would be quite helpful to standardize. I think that is definitely a phenomenon that we're seeing is that there's just too many standards out there. We hope to standardize some of these, either as reporting or just rating the way that we're judging companies or our suppliers. I was wondering, you know, it's the first time I was really thinking about that. And I know that I've read that companies are implementing different softwares to help them manage some of this. And I was just thinking, well, if one company is working with a lot of different companies, that could be really complicated as far as allowing their customers to monitor things in real time by some of those softwares. I just never really thought about that challenge before. Yeah, I definitely think infrastructure, like a company's infrastructure is a big challenge here. You know, it took us decades for all these companies eventually to bring some sort of infrastructure together to collect financial data, right? And then Mm -hmm. now we're trying to do the same thing with non-financial data, which, you know, tends to be a little bit more like qualitative and there's not always numbers. And I think that's a challenging part. And then all these different non-financial data, it's coming from all different departments And you're right, there's like different tools that all these different companies are using. When I'm just looking at the internal ESG performance management sector, like, you know, you have SAP, you have Salesforce, you have Oracle, and it does just take some time for us to eventually get to that maturity that we have for financial data collection because that took us decades, right? And then the same thing with accounting system. I think right now the idea is to have some sort of sustainability accounting system. Again, accounting system took us decades to eventually reach to some sort of global standards. I have a different direction for us. And I was kind of fascinated by this. At NSAID, you were a business case writer after your degree. And I would love to hear about some of the business for good stories of innovative business models that you wrote about. Yeah, definitely. I wrote two business cases and started to draft one of them. So did all the interviews and preparation. One company is Ecovatus. So I worked okay. as an employee because one co-founder is an alumni of INSEAD. So that worked out really well where they started to work on a case with Ecovatus being an alumni But then also I brought in the employee's point of view. So that case is part one. And then I'm actually going to start part two, maybe sometime this year, because they've just grown so much in the past few years. That case was focusing on its business model. I think Ecovatus, it is a sustainability rating agency different from, you know, S&P and analytics and MSCI is that Ecovatus, they claim to focus a little bit more on the private sector because all the public companies, they all get scrutinized a lot, but Ecovatus focusing on the smaller players. And they became a middle solution between self-declared questionnaires where, you know, no verification versus on-site audits where that has existed for quite a while. You have a lot of certifications or social audits where you send auditors on site. So Ecovatis is a solution kind of in the middle 
where you answer a questionnaire and you upload supporting documents. And we have a group of analysts who actually look through the documents and you know have some sort of validation or check, verification of what you claim to do. So Ecovada started quite early on where it is a unique solution. Of course, now there's definitely more more players approaching it a little bit slightly different, but Ecovada has now create quite a good network effect where they work with a lot of large companies who trust their system, but they also work a lot with their suppliers. So there's two network events on the side where the suppliers is happy to work with Ecovatus because if they answer the Ecovatus evaluation once, they can share multiple times to all the clients are within the Ecovatus ecosystem. And then the clients, the large companies will pay a fee to access these evaluations on their suppliers. So that was the first case that I wrote about. A second case is a company called Emma Shoes. It's a Netherlands-based company. So they make safety shoes for different industries. Yeah. And what they eventually was able to do is that they try to make it truly circular, making sure that all the materials that goes into these shoes, they're able to recycle it, reuse and making it truly circular. Yeah. What was quite interesting is that sometimes, you know, these intentions are great and, you know, it's not just about the sourcing aspects, it's actually about the business model itself. Because interesting enough, these safety shoe industry, which I've learned from writing the case, is that they go through a lot of brokers to sell them. So mm-hmm. they don't actually have direct relationship with their clients. So if they go through the brokers, it's actually hard for the clients to recycle or send it back to them for recycling. Right. So they have this great idea of the circular shoe, but then they also need to change the way they're selling their shoes and in the Netherlands or in Europe. That is just how the safety shoe market works. They don't have the direct relationship with the clients. So they have created this circular shoe. The big question at the end of the case is that, look, is MSU able to break that business model that they've been operating on for decades and be able to actually make it operational with this circular Mm. shoe? Yeah. Great stories. In Southern California, a company up the road in Ventura, Patagonia, founded quite a while ago. But they, one of the original, founded with a sustainability and circular economy mindset to making products. And they've got a great story as well. So I was just curious on some of those business for good stories. Yeah. And then another, I think that the last example, actually headquartered in California that I worked on is called Zipline. Yeah. So Zipline, it's a drone company. They started in Africa. So they were able to send a lot of life-saving medicines, vaccines, even blood, actually, to these remote areas in Africa. So they're able to save lives. So I worked on a bit. I believe they're going to finish it hopefully this year and able to publish it. Sounds very interesting. So, you know, before we started recording and we were breaking this down and we talk about some personal level things. 
And I would like for you to speak to that a little bit, if that's okay, because that was really interesting. You know, what companies need to do, educate. What we need to do as individuals. Yeah, as individuals and also companies with their employees and stakeholders of all kinds. I still do think that there's a lot of awareness that all of us need to get people to be aware of. I was sharing with both of you that I did a same thing podcast webinar with a very large Seattle-based tech company, and it's about zero waste. And there were some employees asking like, oh, how does zero waste contribute to net zero? You know, and I realized that a lot of people didn't even connect the dots where any material that we're using, any action that you use, the water that you're using, the hand dryer, the hand towel that you're using, all need resources to be produced. So I think it's just like be much more aware of all your actions. You know, if you use a hand towel, I think one is enough. You don't need three. But I think a lot of people just don't even think about that. So I think the awareness, just like resources. Also, I think overconsumption is definitely one of the main reasons of climate change, because climate change is not just about carbon emissions. It's about also, all the pollution that's coming from plastic or, you know, food waste, like a third of our food is wasted because we don't eat them or, you know, through the process of throwing away. But at the same time, food consists a third of our carbon emission also. So it's not just transportation. Transportation is part of it because we're shipping our food around. But I think, yeah, if you dig down into it, everything that you see, everything that you use is material that we're using, whether it's, you know, energy or resources, we need all of that to produce. And I think we talk a lot about carbon footprint. There's definitely water footprint that I think we don't pay attention to. It does take 10 liters of water to produce a piece of paper. It takes 3,000 liters of water to produce one kilo of beef. So it's not just carbon intensive or eating a lot of burgers. It is also very water intensive. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Where do you think it's all going to be five to seven years from now, the sustainable industry? Yeah, I mean, I wish I have a crystal ball to answer that. And unfortunately, I think because I've been in the space, let's say, long enough to actually feel the pessimist because I feel like we haven't done that much in the past, let's say, 20 years that I started to look into this topic. Every year we have the IPCC report saying, you know, we're on this path that, you know, we have no going back, but nothing has been really done on that level. Well, you know, every year there's a COP, you know, 26, 27, a lot of the rich countries talk about putting a climate fund of some sort to help the developing countries to transfer to a more greener economy. That target has never been met. The money that we wanted to get from the developed country. While QE is 100 times more, we gave out 100 times more money on COVID or on quantitative easing. Or, you know, you look at the oil subsidies is also 10 times, 100 times more than the actual money that we need to make this transition. So when I see these numbers, it just makes me a bit disheartened where we know what to do. I think technology-wise, we also have the technology, but it's really about the political will. And there's just too many interest parties, the lobbying power is too powerful. 
I mean, to stay hopeful, (laughs) I hope there's a lot more third-party verification, shareholder activism, consumer activism, and I guess regulation. You know, to a certain point, people aren't going to move on these things until they're punished, pay fines, and they won't stop greenwashing and stop progress. But I'm hopeful that the combination of those things can keep making a dent and moving it in the right direction. I think Europe is definitely, you know, very ambitious. So I'm looking forward to see how that works out. And of course, the SEC is looking at emissions right now, but hopefully we'll be able to extend that to all these other topics that we talked about. And, you know, going from like that European perspective, also being very comprehensive on all the different aspects, the E, S, and G. Yep, I agree. On that note, I just want to say we greatly appreciate your time. Thank you very much, much for your great questions. And we will be getting back to you soon. Yeah. Look forward to talking with you again soon. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.